You're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Faye Parks. Thank you for joining us. We're giving our volunteers the night off for the holidays. Instead of our usual programming, we're putting the spotlight on some of this year's reporting on labor. The last year has been a busy one for workers across the country. New unions are forming everywhere, striking for fair wages and better working conditions. This summer, Labor Radio's Frank Emsbach brought us the details from a Bloomberg News report. Bloomberg News reports that more than 650,000 American workers are threatening to go on strike this summer, or have already done so, in an avalanche of union activity not seen in the U.S. in decades. The combined actors and writers' strikes in Hollywood are already a once-in-a-generation event. Unions for United Parcel Services, Inc. and Detroit's big three automakers are poised to join them in the coming weeks if contract negotiations fall through. Quote, this will be the biggest moment of striking really since the 1970s, said labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, who directs the University of California Santa Barbara Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. Again, according to Blumberg, the pandemic years have in some ways re-energized American labor, emboldened by tight labor markets and agitated after shouldering new whisks. Workers notched a series of surprising victories at some of the most prominent U.S. companies. Now, wary of soaring corporate profits, as major technological changes threaten up in their industry, unions are ready to test their clout. Quote, there is an ambition here that I think is new, said Lichtenstein. They're on the offense. Again, according to Blumberg, quote, the companies for their part are facing their own economic realities. In Hollywood, studio profits are down because of a shift to streaming, and Wall Street has punished companies for their lagging financials. UPS is confronting difficult headwinds with a package demand declining as the country emerges from the pandemic. And the car makers say they are ready to offer generous pay and benefits, but need to keep wages competitive with the lower paying rivals like Telsa and as they invest billions into the shift to electric vehicles. Quote, in terms of workers in America who still have the ability to change their conditions, these are three of the top ten, said Larry Cohn, a former Communication Workers of America Union president, who now chairs the advocacy group Our Revolution. If unions come out on top, it could be a boost for organizing efforts at companies like Amazon.com and Starbucks that, despite recent wins, still remain largely non-union. Teamsters President Sean O'Brien has said he plans on using the union's success to win over Amazon workers. Blomberg concludes that money is one factor driving negotiations across the board. Secondly, workers in the OAW especially are determined to win back past concessions, like the multi-tier wage systems. Workers are also facing technological change, such as AI in the entertainment industry and the development of electric vehicles in the automobile industry. And they are demanding that their unions take steps to deal with the negative effects of these changes on wages and working conditions. In addition, members have voted a new leadership in the UAW and the Teamsters, in large part because of their pledges to reverse past concessions. Thanks to Blomberg News for information in this report. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. As Frank Emsbach reported, the pandemic shifted the labor paradigm. That includes office workers who worked from home to stop the spread. And while Wisconsin saw that rise in remote work, it hasn't spread equally across the state. Last February, our volunteer reporter, Aaron Ashley, got the details. 
Three years into the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of people working remotely in the Madison area is the third highest across the Midwest, according to a report released this morning by the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The catch? The rise in remote work hasn't been spreading equally across the state. The report finds that although about 15% of Wisconsin workers are working remotely, not everyone has the same level of access to those jobs. Where you live can dictate how easy it is to find a remote job. So can your industry. In Dane and Ozaki counties, the largest portion of the economy is devoted to industries that can easily adapt to remote work, such as information technology and financial services. Both Dane County and Ozaki County have a higher percentage of remote workers compared to the statewide average. Meanwhile, in counties where manufacturing jobs make up the largest portion of the economy, such as Rock County and Dodge County, remote work is below the state average. Joe Peterangelo is a senior researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum and has worked on this report. He says that remote work is benefiting some, but not all the people who may need it most. Looking at it from an equity standpoint, you see that the sectors that tend to allow for remote and even hybrid work tend to employ people that have higher levels of education, tend to earn higher incomes, have better access to benefits like health care. In contrast, the report notes that industries less adaptable to remote work tend to be lower paying by comparison and are more likely to have greater representation of Black and Hispanic workers. A 2020 study by the National Bureau of Economic Research estimated that around two-thirds of jobs in industries like IT, finance, and other industries found in Wisconsin's more metropolitan areas are jobs which can be done remotely, while less than one-fourth of jobs in manufacturing, agriculture, and construction can be done remotely. Peter Angelo says this could worsen existing divides. And then we also saw a national study that showed that Workers who are required to be on site for their jobs exclusively are more likely to be Black or Hispanic than those who are able to work remotely, partially, or all of the time. So there are some inequities there that um, we could be adding on to existing inequities that are already you know, built in. On the other hand, increasing remote work can lessen inequalities for women who are disproportionately more likely to be caregivers by improving the balance between work and family. Recent studies have found that working remotely can cut down on the individual commuting cost related to gas and parking, as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions from personal vehicles. Other studies have found increasing levels of employee disengagement and team dysfunction with remote work, with inconclusive results on productivity. Though COVID-19 caused remote work to spike, the overall trend of remote work in Wisconsin has been rising for years before that. The recent report by the Wisconsin Policy Forum speculates that, if this trend continues, it may lead to a change in how downtown economies are structured. This trend could lead to a future where fewer buildings downtown are allocated to offices and businesses, and more space is allocated towards multi-unit housing. In contrast, residential neighborhoods could see an increase in businesses and higher real estate prices. Peter Angelo says that this is something that he and his team have already started to see. There was some really interesting research recently in New York City showing how few employees are going into offices on Mondays and Fridays and how that's impacting their spending in Manhattan and, you know, basically it's having a longer term effect on the businesses that depend on those workers. So so we're going to have to keep watching this to see how that's affected.
um, but some of that demand um, has been maybe shifted from the downtowns and job centers to other neighborhoods and areas where those employees live. Also in the report, Madison is ranked 22nd nationally in the number of people working remotely, punching above its weight for being the 81st most populous city in the nation. The city of Milwaukee, meanwhile, is ranked 45th for remote work, despite being ranked 30th in population. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. Many office workers at TrueStage, an insurance and financial services provider, wanted to continue remote work post-pandemic. That was one of several demands they listed in their contentious contract negotiations with the company. Last May, WORT's former news producer, Nate Weggehout, headed to their picket line to talk to Will Roberts, a multimedia specialist with TrueStage and an OPEIU member. Union workers at TrueStage, formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, voted to extend their strike as they continue to call for management to offer them a fair contract. Workers with OPEIU Local 39 first went on strike after claiming that TrueStage management had not been bargaining with them in good faith. Around 450 of the 1,750 workers in True Stages Madison offices are part of that union, where 94% of union workers voted to authorize the strike extension, the first since the company unionized in the 1940s. Workers first voted to authorize the strike after negotiating with the company for a new contract for over a year. They say that their top concerns are cutting benefits, outsourcing of jobs, and wage increases that don't match inflation. The union has also filed multiple allegations against the company with the National Labor Relations Board, including retaliation for union activity, unfairly laying off union organizers, and bargaining in bad faith. The NLRB is still investigating those allegations. Earlier today, I went down to the picket line to talk with Will Roberts, multimedia specialist with True Stage and OPEIU union member, about the strike. So, so just to begin, uh, just tell me who who you are and what you do with True Stage. My name is Will Roberts. I'm a multimedia specialist at True Stage, FKA CUNA Mutual Group. And and why did you decide to join the uh, OPEIU uh, union here? Uh, because I think it's really important that workers have the collective uh, bargaining power to improve their working conditions. And so I was really thrilled that this position was a union represented position. It wasn't something that I knew was the case uh, when I joined the company, but when I found out that uh, that was the case, I jumped at the opportunity to join the union and uh, have been really happy that uh, we have a union here and that we have that ability to bargain collectively and improve our working conditions. And and now, Ed, uh, we just got interrupted by some uh, uh, some uh, honking there. How how have things been going? It's been you've been out here for about a week now. How how has it been going? It's been with the big asterisk hanging over this of not earning a paycheck. Uh, it's been really really fun. Um, I would describe the first few days as a. Uh, raucous block party when we knew that the uh, internal launch celebrations of their new True Stage brand was happening. We all lined up on the sidewalk in the uh, physical picket line and uh, made sure that our presence was heard and felt. And uh, it sounds like we did disrupt their uh, activities a little bit, so that was fun to hear about. And as the week has gone on, we've settled into our stride, found a good rhythm for how to sustain this for the long haul. 
Two nights ago, you voted to uh, expand, extend the strike uh, to going forward. It was supposed to end uh, this week, but you voted to extend this going forward. Tell me a little bit about that. So two nights ago, membership met virtually hundreds of members gathered together and we voted overwhelmingly with 94% uh, support to authorize an extension to our unfair labor practice strike. Um, I'll be honest, it was one of the most inspiring moments that I've had in this entire uh, contract campaign so far uh, to see that near unanimous support for an extension to our ULP strike means that uh, we are very united. We're very prepared to be in this for as long as it takes to get a fair deal and uh, the energy after that meeting was really something else it took me a really long time to get to sleep I was riding high and and like you said about 94% uh, voted to extend that the strike here uh, tell me about that it's been really special to see and it, I thought it was revealing because so that kind of solidarity isn't a given, right? That's something that was built, that's something that's fostered, that's something that emerges with an excellent union leadership and with excellent union members. Uh, and it didn't, it could have gone another way. It could have been uh, a 60-40 vote to extend the strike, but it was a resounding majority, a super majority, you might say. I'm not really sure where the cutoff between majority and super majority is, but uh, more than 90% is amazing. And so it was really, really inspiring to know that I was uh, standing there next to my union brothers and sisters and that we all have each other's backs. It was a really remarkable moment to know that we're all in this together and that really came through during that vote. And, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what you guys are calling for. Can you sort of lay out for me what you are asking from formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, now True Stage, uh, what you're asking of their management? Yeah, so it's really important for folks to understand that what we're asking for right now on this strike is just that they return to the bargaining table because this is an unfair labor practice strike. We want them to bargain in good faith. They are they're failing to meet with us at the bargaining table and make significant movement. We've shown our willingness over the last 15 months of bargaining to compromise. We are not out here because we want to be on strike. We're out here because we have to be. We've made significant compromises in our proposals and we're just asking that the company does something completely reasonable and that's have a conversation with us. Let's talk through the issues, but they're deciding to drag this out and uh, retaliate illegally against union leadership. Uh, they're refusing to bargain in good faith and those amongst almost a dozen other unfair labor practice charges is why we're out here on strike right now. And now I, I was talking, I was chatting a little bit with the bargaining team over there a little while ago, but I, I, I want to ask you, how, how has the bargaining been going over the, the past week? Uh, have Has representatives from OPEIU met with, with management? So something that we know for certain is that striking works. Management agreed for the first time since January to meet with our bargaining team outside of mediation and virtually. And that is a huge deal because that's something that we've been asking for constantly. And the second that we go out on strike, their attitude changes a little bit. So it tells us that what we're doing is working and that it takes a united front to get real change. And now since you guys have been out here outside of just management, have, have you heard anything from uh, True Stage at all? Or how, how has the reception been so far? 
From what I've seen, the company has been pretty tight-lipped about what they're saying at this point, and the only statements that they've released are pretty expected boilerplate responses, so nothing really of substance. And what about from the community? Obviously, we've been hearing honking this entire uh, uh, interview here. How has the uh, outreach been from the community? The community support is really, really inspiring. It's uh, really remarkable to see people who are uh, either taking time off or spending their time off, uh, that they would otherwise be doing something out here on the picket line with us, showing their support. We've seen union construction workers walk off the job site here in solidarity with us and refuse to cross the picket line. And I can't tell you how much that means to us uh, to see that kind of solidarity. The support from around the country has been really remarkable too. Uh, we've got, you know, our strike support GoFundMe online. We've got our letter writing campaigns and our virtual picket line is something else that's been going on. So I've got remote coworkers who live all, the, all, all, all across the country who are, while we're out here on the physical picket line, they're meeting all day, coordinating support for us, whether that's delivery of food and beverages, whether that's administrative tasks or social media coordination community outreach it's really amazing that we have that support from people who are not just here physically on the picket line is there just anything else that you want to share with uh, people about what's what's been happening out here I think this is an important moment for Madison workers and Madison residents um, obviously CUNY mutual group slash true stage is a really big employer here in town and so uh, all eyes are on what happens here I hope that folks who are looking to organize their union or, or organize a or negotiate a new contract can uh, learn from our successes. Our chief steward Joe Avica said something that I thought was really inspiring at our April 19th press conference and that is that labor victories are contagious and so hopefully whatever happens with us here the outcome is good but it also means that good things can happen elsewhere as well. Will thank you so much. Thanks Nate. A representative from True Stage told WORT today, quote, True Stage is determined to reach an agreement that is fair and market competitive that meets the needs of our employees, customers, and company. From the start, we have bargained in good faith to come to an agreement, and we are working very hard through the many complex issues on the table. We are encouraged by the progress we've made in these last two weeks, and we have additional mediation sessions set up for next week. As a result of our strong business resiliency plans, we have been able to provide uninterrupted service to our customers as we continue to bargain, end quote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The strike lasted for two weeks, ending in early June. Folks got back to work after signs that True Stage was open to the union's demands. But then negotiations stalled again. Earlier this month, and after two years of almost no progress... The True Stage Workers Union reached a contract agreement with the company, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. What?
Last spring, reporter Abigail Levins attended a packed MMSD school board meeting to hear from local teachers. The board proposed a 3.5% wage hike, but teachers said that percentage was insufficient. We don't have enough. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough anything. We're all overworked. Our specials teachers are asked to cover for someone who's absent. Our coaches are subbing. Everyone's exhausted. We can't keep doing this. That's Betty Jo Bradley, a third grade teacher at Havez Elementary. She and many other community members protest the modest wage increases proposed by the MMSD Board of Education. The Madison Teachers Incorporation, or MTI, has asked for an 8% base wage increase. MMSD has proposed a 3.5% hike in the district's next budget. MTI members donned their union red sweatshirts with solidarity on the back and lined the auditorium waiting to testify. Their main concern was the district not meeting that full cost of living adjustment. Teachers say that, with inflation, what the district has proposed amounts to a pay cut. Michael Jones is the president of the teachers' union. Just to keep up with inflation, we need an 8% adjustment in, in the whole wage salary schedule. Currently, MMSD justifies their salaries by arguing that the salary schedule will provide teachers with a raise. But Jones says that raise is small and not even guaranteed. It also does not take inflation into account. And inflation is why Jones says an 8% increase is a minimum for teachers. It would not even be a raise because the cost of living is higher for everyone. He adds that the lack of pay raise has caused many teachers to leave the district. Shayna Sheeplehut is a teacher at Badger Ridge Middle School in the Verona Area School District. She used to work for MMSD, but could not afford to pay her rent and student loans. She says she makes $8,000 more than she did working in Madison schools. I now feel like a valued employee instead of a body to fill a vacant space. I feel like my job as a professional educator is worth something. Martha Netzloff, a first grade teacher at Lakeview Elementary, said this is the seventh year she has come before the school board asking for a wage that accounts for cost of living. She pointed to the number of issues teachers are grappling with and says the board is banking on teachers to accept less than their worth because they love teaching. I have to come down here once a year to beg you to literally do the bare minimum. MTI has pushed for a similar cost of living adjustments in the past three years. During hours of public comment, teachers and MMSD staff pointed out other issues the district is facing. Everything from larger class sizes to the elimination of certain courses. Jones says that the preliminary budget includes too many cuts. He admits that enrollment is declining, but the cuts are outpacing that decline. Lee Lutke, an MMSD parent and first grade teacher at Franklin Elementary, was one of those concerned about larger class sizes. A few weeks ago, I asked my fourth grader after school about his day, and the first thing he said was, well, if we get one more student, we won't have enough chairs and music. We won't have any more room on our computer cart. Lutke says there are now up to 29 students in one classroom, which is too much for one teacher to handle. Melissa Olander, a teacher at Havez Elementary, also says that cutting staff is unrealistic. Havez has only been fully staffed one day this entire year. Olander says their school needs a full-time substitute teacher and a full-time special education teacher. District custodians also spoke at the meeting. They said that they were the only group that didn't receive the $5 pay raise. Rob Larson, one of those custodians, said that many custodians are living paycheck to paycheck and working crazy hours just to keep up with the lack of staff. We're here to peacefully protest against being forgotten 
ignored, and frankly blown off. Another common critique from teachers was a perceived lack of district transparency from administrators. Jones, the teachers' union president, says he hopes the school board will consider adjustments to the budget before it's finalized. The budget will be finalized in the fall after enrollment numbers are confirmed. Outgoing MMSC Superintendent Dr. Jenkins has said that he wishes the schools had more money, but that is up to the state. A study conducted last year by the Wisconsin Policy Forum found that Wisconsin's spending on K-12 education was below the national average. But Jones says there has been indications that district leadership might reconsider an increase to base wages. He says open conversations with administrators is important. So instead of making kind of like a rash uh, decision, let's slow down, let's have more conversations with each other as opposed to talking at each other, let's talk with each other and try to solve some of these problems, as opposed to assuming one group has all the answers and holds all the cards. Jones says that when you help teachers, you help students. Netzloff, the first grade teacher at Lakeview, asked the school board to care about students. If you won't do it for us, do it because of the children. See you next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. In June, MMSD's school board approved a record 8% increase in teacher salaries. The maximum allowed by Wisconsin's Employment Relations Commission, reports the Capital Times. Last March, reporter Aaron Ashley got the details after workers at Madison Sourdough filed for union recognition. One of Madison's more popular bakeries is making local headlines, but not for its iconic bread recipes. Workers at Madison Sourdough filed for union recognition with the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, on Monday. That follows business owners' refusal to recognize the initial petition last week and requesting a secret ballot supervised by the NLRB, reports the Capital Times. Workers initially petitioned for recognition to join the United Food and Commercial Workers, or UFCW, Local 1473, but were denied. The question of whether or not the bakery workers will form a union now heads to the ballot box in a process that will take weeks. It is unclear how many of the company's 42 eligible employees support the move to unionize. But if a majority vote in favor, UFCW Local 1473 will become the representative of the employees in negotiations with the business owners. If successful, the business owners will have to negotiate pay raises and benefits through UFCW instead of with individual employees. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. In April, workers at Madison Sourdough voted 27 to 13 to approve the union. 
Since June, they've been bargaining for their first contract. According to the union, negotiations were extremely slow, but they're starting to make progress. They've also established a mutual aid fund, should they need to strike in the future. You can get the details on their social media at Madison Sourdough United Workers. The workers at Madison Sourdough are not the only ones in the local food service scene fighting for better wages and conditions. In August, reporter Sarah Gabler brought us an update on the labor action at Leinenkugels after they ended their strike. As the long Labor Day weekend approaches, it's an apt time to appreciate the workers that brew your beloved summer shandy. That's because this week marks the end of a nearly two-month-long strike at the Leinenkugels flagship location in Chippewa Falls. After two rounds of contract negotiations, the union members voted to approve a new three-year contract with Molson Coors, Leinenkugels' parent company. Workers took to the picket line on July 10th, demanding higher wages and more respect. John Lane, who has worked at the company for 33 years, told Eau Claire's WQOW that strikers were looking for a fair contract in which they would receive a wage increase to get them up to the cost of living, which he said is something which we haven't gotten for a number of years now. Dan Boley represented the Line and Kugels members of the Teamsters Local 662. He says an important addition to the contract is language that would hold the company accountable. Therefore, the new contract includes clearer guidelines on how workers would receive wage increases within the tiered wage system. Leinenkugels has been brewing beer since 1867, and it promotes itself as a small-town mom-and-pop operation. But for workers, the small-town pride is overshadowed by corporate ownership. The global beverage giant Molson Coors has owned Leinenkugels since 2016, and even as Leinenkugels has maintained its image as a family-run regional operation, this image doesn't jive with workers' experiences, according to Boley. You know, the management doesn't know the employees' names anymore after it's not the, the mom-and-pop shop anymore. And that, that goes outside of the, just the brewing industry as well. You know, you have a couple big companies in the world that buy up everything, and sort of the lack of respect for the employees is gone at that point. To support the strikers, the Teamsters Union set up a solidarity fund and called for a wide-reaching boycott of all Molson Coors products, which included Coors, Hams, Keystone, Miller, and Blue Moon brands. The Democratic Party of Chippewa Falls endorsed the boycott. Yet the brewery itself remained open and even offered tours, according to WQOW. But support for the strikers poured in, says Bully, 
Folks sent emails and left messages from as far away as London, Canada, and even Kansas. Despite the show of support for the Line and Kugel's workers, labor organizing in the brewing industry is low, says journalist Dave Infante. He says two factors contribute to the low rate of organizing and brewing. The sense that working in a brewery is a dream job, part of the passion economy, and the fact that many craft breweries are family-owned and managed. The Line and Kugel strike comes to an end at the cusp of the Labor Day weekend, making the story of the workers' strike a story that gets to the heart of the American labor movement. Boley, with Teamsters 662, said he's proud that the organizers stood up to corporate greed. What I'm most proud of is maybe not even what's inside of the contract, is the fact that, you know, about 40 brewery workers from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, stood up to the, the fifth biggest beverage company in the world. Raising a toast to brewers everywhere, I'm reporter Sarah Gabler with WORT News. In June, workers at the State Street Starbucks voted overwhelmingly to join Workers United alongside the workers at the Capitol Square location. Last month, Madison Starbucks workers participated in a nationwide strike, coinciding with the company's biggest promotional day of the year. Reporter Sarah Gabler spoke to some of the folks on the scene. Dozens of unionized Starbucks workers and community members filled the sidewalk outside of the State Street store today. Both the State Street and Capitol Square locations closed as workers took to the picket line. Workers filed an unfair labor practice strike to demand a fair contract that includes improved staffing practices. The organizers of today's nationwide strike are calling it the Red Cup Rebellion because the strike falls on Red Cup Day, a day when customers can receive a free reusable cup when they purchase a holiday drink. The Red Cup Rebellion began last year when over 100 unionized locations went on strike. They demanded better wages, as organizer Chanel Biami told WORT News last year. Evan McKenzie, a shift supervisor and union organizer, says that this year union members are focusing on better staffing and contracts. What we're striking specifically about are promotional days, but we're talking about staffing, especially in Madison, as just every single day. But our promotional days, like Thursdays or BOGO days, normally in the past we've had increased staffing because we see up to like 100% increases in the amount of drinks we make. 
and the amount of customers we serve. But this year, we've seen almost zero changes in staffing in the afternoons, even though it puts an additional strain on our afternoon workers. So we're telling Starbucks that if they don't bargain over these things and over staffing in general and a contract, then we're going to shut it down. Today's strike comes two months after the State Street workers walked out over staffing issues. As Maeve Perkins, a barista who has worked at Starbucks for over two and a half years, says, Our strike in September, we just walked out of the store because we had severe understaffing. We had hour-long wait time, so we just we sent a strike notice to our manager and we walked out. Last month, State Street employees requested containers for safe needle disposal in their stores. Their request was denied, and instead the company installed bathroom timers and told employees that they were now responsible for monitoring customers' use of their bathrooms. Evan McKenzie says he's proud to live and work in Madison, where his union receives community support. They're really lucky to be living in Madison. Madison is a union town, and you can see it. The mayor came by earlier today, a school board member, Nikki Vandermeulen, doing a speech later. We have a bunch of the Madison community out here with different labor organizations and community groups because this town understands that we are the community. You know, the workers who are at these stores provide their coffees every day, and it's just it's so heartwarming. But it's hard for Starbucks workers to feel the love on a day-to-day basis when they're understaffed and stressed out, says barista Senua O'Connor. Because you want to be friendly and nice and outgoing and, and make a community, and it sucks when all you can do is go as fast as possible on bar. You know, There'll be times where I'm right next to someone on the bar, and we don't say a single word to each other because we're just working. That makes me feel like I'm on you know, old-fashioned... Uh, you know, factory line. And it's not the job that I signed up for. I'm here to be a barista. I'm here to create a community and, and, and meet people. And I can't do that when we're understaffed like this. O'Connor links the routine understaffing on promotional days to union busting tactics. It's very intentional. We can't be, uh, can't be too clear about that. Uh, the typical procedure for Starbucks is to give us more staff on promotional days, and they simply decided not to do that this year. So I want to make it clear that it is intentional and that they are trying to make us hurt a little bit. Strikers also voiced concern that Starbucks would bring in workers to break the picket line. And a chalk sign outside the Capitol Square Starbucks reads, quote, closed for union busting. To this, Evan McKenzie says. Up until 24 hours ago, we thought we were going to get scabbed. Um, What that means is having a bunch of workers who are not from our store come in and break the strike, cross the picket line in order to open the store even while we're striking. Due to a number of factors, but most specifically the amount of organization we've done before this strike, where we talked to the community, we got confirmations from different uh, political figures that they were going to be here, they felt it would be unwise to scab a store right in front of the state capitol. Starbucks continues to implement other union-busting tactics at the State Street and Capitol Square locations, including disabling the credit card tipping system. That means at these two locations, customers can't leave credit card tips for the baristas. But credit card tips are offered to other non-unionized locations as benefits. Today's Red Cup Rebellion 
comes as Starbucks workers have become an epicenter for labor organizing. Since 2021, more than 360 Starbucks locations across 41 states have formed unions, and that's out of the more than 16,000 stores nationwide. There are only two unionized stores in Madison, the Capitol Square location whose workers formed a union in June of 2022, and the State Street location, which unionized in June of this year. Pearl, a barista at the East Washington Starbucks, a location that doesn't have a union, says. Um, my location is pretty new. When we first got, when we first opened, we trained at the two unionized locations, all of the new baristas, and the opening of the store was a big mess. <laughs> and uh, I know there's some people at my store that think that because we're a little bit slower, we don't need a union, but I say that that's why we do need to unionize, because nip it in the bud before it starts, you know? I spoke with other baristas who believe today's strike will send a message to the company and to their customers. My name is Elena. I'm a barista at State Street Starbucks, and this is my first union event as a barista at State Street. Um, it's really exhilarating being out here. Asking for a fair contract feels empowering, and it feels like we can make some real change. So I'm happy to be out here. I'd rather be out here than in class. So, <laughs> What is it like being a student worker? What do you think your fellow students need to know about what you're doing out here today? I think being a student worker gives you a really unique perspective. A lot of our customer base, especially on State Street, are students and they just see Starbucks as somewhere that they get coffee and they don't really see the people behind the bar who are working and who are their fellow students. Um, and so I think being out here and raising awareness of what we're going through at work, understaffing, lowing, lower wages, um, can give the students that we serve a better perspective on what we're going through. The person serving you is a person and we have our own needs and rights and we want to help you as much as we can, but we can't do that without corporate helping us first. And at the end of the day, Maeve Perkins believes that today's strike is going to make a national impact. I have a feeling that this national strike is going to create change. You know, Starbucks is going to get to the point where they can't keep holding off our contract because we're not going to stop fighting and we're not going to stop striking and we're not going to stop protesting and they're going to realize that at some point. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. Madison has no shortage of coffee shops. When sipping your drink from your favorite spot in town, have you ever wondered how much preparation goes into that cup? Earlier this month, feature contributor Riley Cutright got a peek behind the scenes in WORT's bi-weekly feature, Madison's Backbone. She spoke with Mikey, who discussed their experience as such an important part of our morning. If at any point I'm simply not smiling, 
passively or if the way that I behave changes in the slightest way to even a more neutral manner, people will notice right away. They know something's wrong. So I sort of have no choice but to keep that face regardless of what the scenario is. And that's labor. That's emotional labor. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. All right, everyone, welcome to Madison's Backbone. I'm here with Mikey this week, and we're going to talk about what it's like being a barista. My first question is, how did you get your start? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I actually got my start uh, what is now just over six years ago. And at the time, I had come off of a period of about six months of being homeless. And I was trying to find an entry point into the working world. Whether or not I wanted to, you know, it was what had to be done. And at that stage, and for a long time after that, my brother was a barista. And so what my brother was doing was working in a shuttle outside the airport, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. He's making coffee for people outside the airport. And so what I had the opportunity to do was to join him there overnight and learn directly from him. The moment he hasn't got a customer to serve, he's teaching me how to make coffees. So I was able to establish this sort of skill ahead of time that when I approached Starbucks initially, this is the first time I worked with them in 2017, I had a leg to stand on as well. I said, I have something of a skill set to come with. I have no experience whatsoever, but this is what I do have. And I sort of talked my way into the job that way. Learning something from somebody that they care about, that they are passionate about, it makes it so much easier to learn. What exactly do you do during your workday? To put it best, when I arrive at work early in the morning, the way my day begins is with some very solid routine. I do almost the exact same routine every single morning, and I do it very comfortably. I love doing that. I get everything set up for the day. So a big part of my early day is to prepare beverage components, prepare the store and all the utilities that we use for not just myself, but everybody who's going to be working during peak hours of the day. And then for the majority of the rest of the time, I more or less do exactly as I'm told, which is something that I kind of really like. I like not having to think too hard about it. I appreciate no longer having to direct people myself. To get down to the nitty gritty, what I do is I speak to people and I make things for them that they love, which is a a huge thing that I enjoy doing. I love crafting a beverage for somebody knowing that they're about to adore it. And a lot of what I do there also involves just chatting with them at the beginning of the process, at the end of the process. And I guess what I really enjoy about that is that they remember me afterwards. My next question is, what hours of the day do you work? I work very consistently now between 4.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. On some days, I get to go home at 12 noon. They used to schedule me until sometimes 9.30, 10.30. That's long gone. So now I work four pretty standard, consistent shifts. And if I'm unlucky, they'll call me in on a Thursday as well. I mean, you said that mm-hmm. if you're unlucky, they call you on Thursday. So do you get some days of the week off or like what kind of do you, oh, yeah. is it different every time or do you have a set schedule? Right now it's relatively consistent. I'm so happy to tell you that I get Fridays and Saturdays off. I worked hard to make that happen. See, it sounds like three days off is a lot sometimes, but the truth is, of course, because I have two jobs to do, I get, you know, one and a half days off. 
How does that impact your life? Do you enjoy working those shifts? Like some people really enjoy working the odd hours and they kind of seek mm-hmm. that out. But do you enjoy working those really, really early morning shifts? Do you enjoy consistency or? I think yes to both. I've definitely grown very accustomed to it. When I began my tenure with this company, I was working afternoons through evenings that uh, when I'd go home, usually the sun's already down. But as it is now with these AM shifts, I, I think I've come to really love them. There's something I enjoy about having the afternoon to myself, even if it means I go to bed at a responsible time. That's what I'll call it. Yeah, I love having the afternoon to myself. I love being able to go home with the sun still shining. And whether or not I really enjoy waking up early, I can't say genuinely that I do, I definitely feel some sense of, well done, Mikey, you got up early. You know, you're getting up early. You can do that. And what's absurd about it to me really is the way that so many people, I'll ask them how they're doing and they say, oh, it's too early to know. I'm checking the clock. It's 8 a.m. I've been up for five hours, you know. What is the most difficult part of your job? The best way to put it is keeping up a facade in the sense that a lot of the time that I am working, I get to be 100% myself and genuine. And then a lot of the time I have no choice but to act the same way that I would on one of those days, even when I do not. I don't really have a choice in that matter in the sense that there's an expectation of us all to not just smile, but be our best selves at all times and be on our best behavior as it is in any service industry. And, you know, I'm going through the same problems as everybody else is. You know, like I was just telling you, our family dog passed away and it makes no difference to everybody who comes into my store. It makes no difference to upper management. I have to put on a smile. And, And what I notice about that is that everybody knows immediately if I fail to maintain that facade. If at any point I'm simply not smiling, passively or if the way that I behave changes in the slightest way to even a more neutral manner, people will notice right away. They know something's wrong. And so I sort of have no choice but to keep that face regardless of what the scenario is. And that's labor. That's emotional labor. Emotional labor. I love it. Yeah. It's awesome. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, it is emotional labor for you to have to like hold that smile and hold that tone when somebody says something out of pocket to you. Do you have a favorite part about your job? In general, favorites are difficult to identify for me, but I think for this one, I know for a fact it's the people that I work with. To a degree, also the people that I get to see every day on the other side of the bar, but 100% the answer is the, the people that I work with intimately every day. I come back to this job every day to spend time with my coworkers. I tolerate some other parts of it for the benefit of spending time with my coworkers al- alongside the pay. This role has introduced me to so many people that I'm incredibly grateful to have met that I simply would never otherwise have done so. There are people there that I would consider some of my closest friends without question, people that I can confide my deepest secrets to, you know, people that I trust with my life. And that is what keeps me going on the day to day. I find fulfillment from spending time with some of these people. Like I said, there are some customers who I do cherish as well. I mean, if there's anybody there that I could tell honestly what's going on in my life, I think that's kind of big. To put it summarily, it's people. What kind of educational background do you have? Uh, Yeah, not related to what I'm doing in any capacity. I finished high school in New Zealand before I moved out here. And in addition to that, I did do some tertiary study there. I have a diploma in PC support because at the time I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do career-wise. And that's not to say that I know for a fact what I'm going to do now. But I went for something that was accessible to me. 
and I wouldn't I want to say relatively affordable on account of the fact that I'm almost finished with my student loan there. And besides that, nothing. I never went to college in the greater capacity. Coffee-wise, I have like a, a meaningless certificate that says I went through a course, you know, that n- nobody would take into account anyway. Do you think that you and other people in your profession receive enough recognition? The short answer is no. I think in a lot of ways, the way I want to open this is that I see a lot of people every day. I talk to a lot of people every day. And what I can tell right away sometimes from speaking with them is that they've absolutely never worked in a service career before. And it does change you. You know, it's, it, it does change your bottom line. And if you don't have that perspective, you behave a different way. I think the service that we provide is valid. I think the service that we provide needs to be compensated appropriately. And I think we need to be treated with respect just like absolutely everybody else does. There's this impression that it's a transient sort of role to be in, that it's a temporary thing or that it's a thing that you can't spend the rest of your life doing, but simply people do. So many people in the community rely on that, you know, we might open on Thanksgiving an hour later than normal and people want to speak to the manager because they drove from XYZ place in the city at this time before work or what have you. So if it's as important to them as it is when they say so, I think it could be just as important when they speak about us in hindsight or when they pay us as well. There's a lot of people for whom we are an integral part of their mourning. People rely on us in some sense and we set the tone for them in other senses. So I think it's a little bit overlooked what kind of a role we have in people's day-to-day life, given the context of it being really a fast food restaurant in some senses. And that does it for tonight's holiday show. We've been listening to a year in review on labor organizing. Special thanks to our volunteer reporters, Abigail Levins, Aaron Ashley, and Sarah Gabler, as well as Labor Radio's Frank Emsbach, feature contributor Riley Cutright, and our former news producer, Nate Weggehout. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I've been your host, Faye Parks. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast, which you can find on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is En Nuestro Patio. Have a good night.